right, we're in Judges, in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. And we've been looking at the story of Gideon, one of these uh, people that God raised up in a time when the nation and people in that nation had strayed from the Lord and had gone into basically idolatry again, worshiping false gods. And when we were at camp this week, we were talking about the Amy Carmichael story. She was a missionary in India. And we talked a lot about false gods and idolatry or worshiping idols. And, and that's something that was going on way back in the book of Judges. It is something that continues to this day. People would rather go and worship something that they can control than to worship the one true God, the creator God, who no one controls but himself, just so you know that. And I think that's what draws people to idolatry is that they can go and make a God in their image. That's what they do. And often it is in the image of our sinful heart and all the evil that that produces. And that was the case that was going on in Gideon's time. People were worshiping Baal. Baal was a fertility God attached to the Canaanite people and, and people in that world. And they believed that their crops and their... Um, their crops would have you know good fruit if they worshiped Baal um, and they did all that and they also involved the worshiping of Baal was done some things were done very secretively but it often involved great perversion and other things that were going on in the groves where they erected their images of Baal and um, also some Eshteroth which is also the uh, yeah, the goddess or Baal's, essentially Baal's wife, uh, and doing that. Anyways, they were false gods. And uh, God called Gideon, a man, we've already looked at him for two weeks now. Uh, we've looked at this scene and we've looked at how God called Gideon out of that and began to prepare him for deliverance of the Midianites, that were the Midianites were all through their land and they were made basically enslaved Israel and had impoverished them because they were taking all their, their crops or destroying them. And Baal had let them down, for sure. <laughs> Baal was not hearing anything. And Gideon is called of God and is called to repent, and he repents on behalf of his nation, and he leads his nation back in a deliverance, a time of great deliverance. We pick it up in Judges chapter 6, verse 25. And it says this, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to, to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too, much, uh, much to do it by day, or excuse me, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal, tore down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was being offered on the altar which had been built. 
And so they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day he called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and as always, we ask you would just plant it in our hearts and minds deeply this morning. And help us, O Lord, be obedient to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to this uh, section of Gideon's life, and what we really see is a, a challenge that God gives to Gideon, a challenge of obedience. And really, we see where Gideon, this fearful man who God called a mighty man of valor, but really, we know the first time we're introduced to him, he's hiding from the Midianites and he's threshing out wheat in the wine press, hiding down in that. And God looks on him and sees him beyond what he was in his very circumstances. And I'm thankful that that's the way God is. By the way, he knows the outcome of your life even now. And even before you were born. Even before there was anything created, he knew all things already. That's the way God is. He is omniscient he knows the beginning from the end and he is eternal and that's the way God is and he saw Gideon as a mighty man of valor even though Gideon himself hadn't seen that yet Gideon was hiding he was fearful he was a man of no courage it seemed like in his own heart and yet that God was going to ask him Gideon I want you to go into these areas of obedience now the very first thing that God does when Gideon finally begins to follow him of course he In the previous section, we looked at how he met the Lord himself, and there was an altar that he uh, was to build and everything else, and he had this encounter with God himself. And then from there, God calls him to be a reformer, in a sense, where he is to go and call his nation to repentance. And he begins in his own family. And I think that's where we all need to begin. That's where we're at, right? Where we have a family around us or we have friends around us. And he, God always begins his journey of faith with us where we are at, if that's proper English. I don't know. You're not supposed to end in a preposition probably, right? But that is exactly how it is. Um, and I'm glad that, that God is like that. Now, he looks on the believer. If you're one of his, he sees you beyond this life and he sees us like christ because that's the final outcome for all of us who are believers we're being conformed into his image that's a process for gideon it was a process in his life he didn't just immediately turn to the lord and say let's go tackle the midianites no god had to deal with gideon and build this man and allow him to be obedient in the little things so that he could do mightier things. And that's the way God is. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.13, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And in that section, he's talking about that future aspect. It begins now where we will be brought into unity with Christ and made like him the perfect man. And that isn't going to happen completely here. Uh, as so long as that old nature still resides within us, there's still a sin nature. If you feed that sin nature, you'll follow that. But we now have also a new nature, being born again. And if you are born again, you now can serve Christ and be more like him. And that process continues in our life. And it will continue all the way till the day of Jesus Christ. When you see him in all his glory, he will make you perfect then. Romans chapter 8. We know this verse, it's often quoted, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. May I just say this, that that Gideon was called according to the purpose of God. And if you're one of his gods, you are called to a purpose. You say, well, what's that purpose? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The reason God is allowing anything to go on in your life now, the struggles, the, the bad things, the good things, all things, all things is to produce a conformity to the image of his son. And that's a process. And sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it also uh, is, is times where it brings great joy to us. But it is a conforming process where we become more like him. And it says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, I'm glad that God has a a work in progress today on every single one of his. And he was doing that with Gideon also. We start, if you want an outline, you can look at it this way. God's command. God just gave a simple command to Gideon. And then it was on Gideon to do it. By the way, he's given us many commands in the scripture. And it's on us to obey. That's the way it really is. In verse 25 says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down now you have here the command of god and it was a very specific command he even told him how to do it he was to go in and he was going to take a the, his father's second bull and somebody said why the second wouldn't god want the first well most likely that first bull had been one that was already dedicated to baal And God wasn't going to take what Baal had been dedicated with and use that. He was going to take the better, the one that hadn't. And he would ask that that animal would take the place. And there was a picture of how God was going to deal with sin, by the way. Whenever we want to uh, be saved and, and depart from sin and have our sins forgiven, someone or something in this case had to die. That was the picture. And that animal would have to die and be sacrificed upon that altar. And it would be uh, an image of what it required, which was a very costly requirement for the animal especially, but for also for his father, who just lost a bull. And he was to sacrifice that as a means to show that he was believing God and trusting God. 
Ultimately, the sacrifice that would take away sin was not found in blood of bulls and goats and all of that. It was found in the person of Jesus Christ. See, for God to remove our sin completely, to forgive us of our sin, he would have to send himself. God the Son would come and die in our place. That's the story of the gospel. It's as simple as that. That God, Jesus Christ the Lord, would come and he would walk among us. And in his prime he would be cut down and he would be sacrificed on a rock a place called Golgotha or Calvary in the Greek. And there he would be exposed to all the world to see the harshness of the penalty of sin, which was his suffering death and his very life having been snuffed out because he died, but yet he was not, he, he, he was not, he was not to remain dead, was he? On the third day he rose again victorious over sin and over death and over everything that this world has thrown at us. That was pictured in this offering that he was called to keep. My friends, God wants us to obey him. He may not ask you to do something like that. I would doubt he would because that's not something that is needed today. Because Jesus came to die for us once for all. That means never again is there needed another sacrifice of something else, a substitute like a lamb to go and be put out on an altar somewhere and, and be killed and then, and then sacrificed. It, it, there's no need for that anymore. There's not one thing you could ever buy or do for your salvation. It has been paid in full at the cross of Jesus. But we are to obey him, to be obedient to the faith. That means that it, we need to receive him as our savior. That's the first step of obedience. We are to obey the gospel. If you don't, if you say, I, I'll put that off, you're being disobedient to what God has extended to you. If you're a Christian, you've already taken that step of obedience. You, you need to walk with him in his commands. And he gives lots of them to us, and they're not too hard. They're simple commands. We're to love one another. You say, well, that's hard, especially the people I'm around. Is it? Sometimes it's a lot on us. Love comes from within. Start within, right? Close. There's, there's a lot. I could go command after command after command, but they're all things that can be done. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Isn't that great? To, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Those three things really could surmise what he requires of us as believers. To do justly. We live in a world where it's terribly unjust. There's always something unfair going on. And it's amazing when a Christian, a believer steps up and says, I'm going to be just in a world that's unjust. I'm going to be fair in a world that's unfair. And, and you can do that as a child. I'm thankful for those Christians I met as a, as a young person in my grade school. There were people that got saved in Eagle Lake. And some of their kids got saved. And I remember the difference in their life. And I mean that. And I was watching and I thought these people have been brainwashed because I knew what they used to be like. 
I didn't realize it wasn't brainwashing. It was their sins were washed. And they didn't have all the theology. They didn't know everything that they knew Jesus. And they were nice to me at school. And that spoke volumes to me as a Christian. And later on as a teenager. And their language was different. And they were fair with people. I think that said a lot. You could do that as a child. How much more so in your place of influence, in your home, in your work, in your circle, maybe as an adult? How about to love mercy? That means you look forward to being kind and gracious and merciful to people. Right? There's all kinds of opportunities to do that. All over the place to do that. Be kind in a world that's just not kind. You don't think it's kind. I mean, you just look on social media when you post. If you post something somebody doesn't agree with, which there's always somebody that won't agree with you. And people just have become so unkind. (laughs) It isn't great for Christians who can just be nice. And if you can't be nice, don't say anything, right? And I mean that. To love mercy. To love grace. To walk humbly with your God. See, it's not about us. It's not about us. My wife and I are reading a book called Boys in the Boat. And it's about a rowing team out of Washington State back in 1936 when they went to the Olympics. And I'll tell you something. It's a great book. And it really talks about those, those boys that came through that college in that time of, of the 1930s. They were in the heart of the Depression. And there were lots of competitors. They were competing against the East Coast boys like Harvard and Yale and these guys that had all the money and everything else and never worked a day in their life, most of them. And they were competing against them and they were already behind in that. But And I won't, I won't tell you the story. You pick up the book if you want to read it, The Boys in the Boat, and you'll just be blessed to read about the, life, the lives that some of these, these individuals that made up a team of rowers and, and one of the things that stood out was this, that slowly as they began to kind of shift people around between the, the, the first boat, the second boat, the third boat, and all that, and the crews around till they got a crew that would be the winning crew, it was made up of boys, young men, that were all humble. That's what the author says. All humble. They had been humbled through life, some having tremendous loss in their life, having to literally... Um, live on their own on occasions and things like that and to make their way through their college years all of those things and God had really made them humbled and then they could be used you want to be used by God be humble be willing to do anything Roger and I were talking this week and he was talking about the time he went to MBBI and God spoke to your heart about going and I like Roger Labby, if you don't know that. I, mean, I do. I really do like him. Um, and and he's, a, he's a guy that just does. And I'm thankful, Roger. You've been a good, you and Donna both, a good testimony in that. Doesn't argue, just does it. And he was at MBBI and the mission, I'm assuming a missionary conference or spring conference, some conference, they always are talking about going, right? Go and be a witness. And Roger jumped up on the stage afterwards and cornered Mr. Dowie and said, I'm going. And Mr. Dowie said, where? 
Where are you going? He says, I'm going. And he realized what he was talking about. And Mr. Dowie said, then be willing to go back to your home church and scrub a toilet. Wow. And when he came back, yeah, he told Pastor Dick about that conversation. Pastor Dick said, I bet he told you to go scrub the toilets, right? Or get a, do something. Yep. It's good advice. Good advice. And you started your ministry here scrubbing toilets, I think, right? If I got that right? Other areas, too. Be willing to scrub a toilet. Don't, don't just, you know, you say, I'm going to aspire to tackle the Midianites. Slay the giants. Be the next Billy Graham. No. Aspire to help somebody in a humble action. And God will make something out of that. And he, he will give you maybe some other way of doing that. I'm glad about that. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are to run this race like a race of endurance. And that means you might have to scrub a lot of toilets on the way. You might have to wash a lot of dishes. You might have to work with a lot of campers. You might have to do some humble things with your work itself, let alone ministry. But God is most exalted when we are made little in our own eyes and in others, really. He's able to shine forth. Aren't you glad for that? That's the kind of people God uses. He uses people like Gideon, who doesn't appear to me as a courageous man, but there was something about Gideon. He was humble. God was using him. How about the story of David? Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth. And he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I ran away. Is that what he said? No, he said, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. What a story. Can God use a David? Yeah, but David wasn't first used by God when he was standing in front of Goliath or even Saul. David was used when no one else was watching. And as a shepherd, when that bear came or that lion came, he didn't just defend against it. He went after them. He took the battle to them. We need people like that. And you know, we wouldn't probably... David didn't write a book about that event. It showed up later in the Word of God. God has a way of keeping track of everything, right? Isn't that good? He keeps track of your actions. He keeps track of every little thing you ever do. Every mighty thing that you'll ever do. 
whether or not I see it or anybody else. Think of all the ways that God did those things. A very simple command. Here's a giant, and no one was going down to fight the giant. David says, I'll go. How about Abraham? We studied Abraham not long ago. Remember, in Abraham, before Abraham could be used to build a mighty nation, he first had to trust the one true God and come out among his family, come out from Ur of the Chaldees, everything that made it was familiar in his life, and he had to walk with God. And then God would show him, you're going to have a son in your old age through Sarah. I'm going to build a nation with you. And he was ready to trust God in that. And there's so many more. Peter, for example. Oh, Peter, you know. Peter, the one who God called, the fisherman who said to the Lord initially, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. But the Lord didn't depart from him. And I thought about that. Because God, when he puts his stamp on us, he stands by us. Even when we look at ourselves and we say, I've done it again. I've failed you again. But he's there. Need only turn around and turn to him. And he's there. Aren't you glad for that? You pray for our people that were baptized this week. Because Satan is desiring to sift each and every one of them as wheat. And all of us the same way. And if you want to be attacked by Satan, you just take a stand for him once. And you'll notice it. You pray for them. But I can tell you this with all assurance. And my prayer is they follow the Lord with obedience and all that. But you need only turn back to him if you stumble in the way. He's right there. He wants to be with you. David was such a man. Abraham. Peter. Peter. Think of Peter. He, He denies the Lord. I mean, what worse thing could you do is deny the Lord in the Lord's greatest need of our. When he's being getting ready to be crucified and Peter says I know not the man and he goes out after the rooster crows and he weeps bitterly because he's let the Lord down and did he not realize that just 50 days later Peter would be standing in front of thousands of people preaching the gospel with all boldness and with such wisdom from on high not peter's wisdom he was a simple fisherman that's all he was and he's preaching the gospel and three thousand people get saved acts 238 then peter said to them repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the holy spirit for the promise is to you who and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the lord our god will call And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Think of that. The man who just a couple months before, less than that, had just denied his Lord. And now he's witnessing a great movement of God unfolding and we're beneficiaries of that movement because those christians went out from there and they shared christ with others with their families with their neighbors with people who were persecuting them and they continued to go out and out and out till one day someone passed that torch to someone who told you will you be that someone will you be the one who will tell others about jesus christ eternity depends on it for that person I'm thankful for those that did that. 
And look, and then it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. We have those verses in several languages hanging on the wall. Because it's a doctrinal, it's really a a mission statement of the early church, and I think that should be our mission statement as well. That we continue steadfast in solid doctrine, the apostles' doctrine. Not not the, 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 the traditions and other things that may have come in later that we think now are doctrine, but the Bible. Always go back to the Word of God as your substance and your source. And fellowship. There's something wonderful about getting around other Christians and fellowshipping and having that our batteries recharged. In the breaking of bread, that, that is that time together around a table, but it, I think it even refers closer than that, the communion of the saints as we, as we gather together celebrating and remembering what God has done for us. It was in the breaking of bread that he showed himself to the two on the road to Emmaus. It was later in the breaking of bread that Christians, and all the way down through the centuries since then, have declared the death of the Lord Jesus. And in prayers. How are you doing in prayers? Are you pouring out your heart before God for, for others and you know, lifting up requests and being made known unto Him? Because that's what we're to do. The Bible says pray always. How's your prayer life? Those are areas that we sometimes can fall short. But when we are engaged in those things in a balanced, healthy way, look what it says. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. It's like the church just all of a sudden realized, it's not about me. I'm going to go out and serve the Lord. And they did so, meeting the needs of others, all of that. I'm thankful for, for those of you who are like that. You're to be commended. God keeps track of faithfulness. Luke 16.10 He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. You're known by what you're faithful at or what you're unfaithful at. We see God's command, but we see Gideon's obedience. And I, I like this because Gideon didn't argue with God. Oh, he, he was a little doubtful, I think. There's some things there he was worried about. We'll talk about that. But, but we see what Gideon does here. It says, so Gideon, remember God said, and then it says, so Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, you see a a faith in action, but it's a wavering kind of faith. I think we've all been there where we say, I'm willing to follow you, God, but I don't know if I want to tell this guy or show this or even might have my family know. Um, uh Uh-oh, you know, those kind of things. And we're like that. But God is a big God. He's able to take care of his own. He's able to take care of his reputation. He's able to take care of us. We just have to get over the us part. But we see his faith on display. 1 Samuel 17 verse 47 says, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. 
God told Gideon to go out, destroy the image of Baal and Asherah, which was the female deity accompanying Baal, that wooden image, and that was to be actually used as the fire or the, burn, the fuel for the fire. And, and yet, in the back of Gideon's mind is like, well, we'll do this at night. You know, after all, everybody's going to be sleeping and, and they aren't going to be coming. I mean, I'm sure he's doing what we're all doing. We're picturing, well, if I go out and do this and take some, some shrine, some religious thing that my family's going up and worshiping in secret, they would go up in the groves and they would do that, and, and they're going to get mad. And I'm a dead man. But he says, I'll obey God, but I'll do it at night. God didn't tell him to do it at night. Well, he told him to do it. And he told it when he gave him that command, it was at night. He probably should have done it right then. But really, he should have done it in the middle of the day because God wanted to, God was going to openly show it anyways because that's what exactly what happened in our text. We read of that. When they woke up in the morning, there it is, destroyed with a sacrifice burning on the altar. Who did that? And they know who did it. So him doing it at night didn't really do anything for trying to keep it secret. God is one that when he deals with sin, and especially referring to the sin here of a people, he does so openly. And he says, I'm going to show you what the cost of your sin is. The battle is the Lord's. And we're reminded that we ourselves can do nothing without the Lord. And Gideon could not go up and destroy that altar and and survive if he had done it in his own strength. I think his family would have come up and killed him. I think his, the, the people around him would have done the same thing. Some angry farmer would have come up and said, hey, my crop's not growing the way it was, and, and it's because you cut down Baal. And he would have gone up and killed him. But God can take care of his own, can't he? Jesus put it this way, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. There's another principle that goes with this. You see, sometimes we value our lives way too much. I, I, I know I value my life. I didn't wake up this morning going, look, how can I get myself dead today? I don't think anybody really thinks that way. It shouldn't. It's unhealthy if you do. But nevertheless, do you wake up in the morning saying, how can I live for Christ? And in spite of the dangers of living for Christ, what does that look like? Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, Paul says, I reckon myself dead My life is dead in Christ. It's hid in Christ. And whatever I do, I'm living. If I live for the Lord or if I die for the Lord. He says in Romans, we are the Lord's. Whether we live or we die. And he's saying this, that as a, I put it this way, as a dead man walking, you don't get too concerned about your life. Well, you don't put it in the right priority anyways. Really, most of our lives, and I'm speaking for myself, but is about protecting me and protecting maybe those right around me and i don't think about the vulnerability of going out and sometimes doing something where your life might be in danger there are missionaries serving and christians serving around the world today 
that just by meeting together, they're putting their lives in danger. Putting their lives in danger. Uh, Zena's not here today. She was, she's sick, but Victor and Zena, I've listened to their testimony, and Zena tells us a little girl going off at uh, times of prayer and having to wade in the water in a swamp to go into the woods in the cold to pray together because if they would have been gathering in prayer anywhere else, they would have been a target of persecution. When was the last time you went to a prayer meeting in a swamp in, your, in, in the time of cold? See, if you value your life too much, you won't pray. If you value your life too much, you won't tell anybody about Jesus. If you value your life too much, you'll never do anything for him. And I am so thankful for those who aren't like that. In the book of Revelation, it talks about those who will be martyred. And this is the image that, that is given in the stamp that God puts on them. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. In other words, they loved him more than themselves. Oh, when a Christian is living like that, they will live for others first. They will live for their families first. They will give themselves to the Lord in that way. And it doesn't mean he's going to call you to martyrdom right there. It might. But I will say this, it means that you love him more than your own life. I better move on. God's deliverance. We see God's deliverance. And I'm so thankful for this. Look what it says here. And when the men of the city arose in the, early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal turned down. Torn down, sorry. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bowl was being offered on the altar which had been built. And so they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he, was, he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. You know, the thing that Gideon feared was, was already a fact. The men got upset, even though it happened at night. They didn't see it happen. They got upset when they found out about it. Sometimes the things we fear are nothing that we can change. But we can live for the Lord in faith during those times. And we do see Gideon in that way. We find out that it caused a great stir. People were angry. There was this enmity. They were angry that Gideon had done this. And my friends, there will be anger arise when you serve the Lord. Period. The Bible tells us that if we will live godly, we will suffer persecution. That's a fact. It may be a very light persecution. It may be a, a shunning of a relative. You know, somebody gets mad at you at the dinner table. Maybe it's uh, somebody saying, I never want to sit with you again. And okay, you walk away from that. I always hurt when I've had people walk away because of the fact I'm a Christian. And, and I'm thankful there haven't been a lot of people over the years, but there were some very close friends I had growing up that said, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're one of those born-agains, aren't you? And I didn't say, no, no, no. I said, yeah. And I just said, Jesus changed my life. And this is what you get. 
My friends, they were angry. But God was still going to work. He was still going to do a mighty work. By the way, every instance in Scripture, you see the same thing. When David goes to slay the giant, before he slays the giant, he gets opposition from his own family. His older brother says, aren't you that little sheep tender? Why don't you go back to the sheep? You know, leave this job to the real men. The real man was standing among them. He was younger than them all, and he was going to be the one who would slay a giant. And they didn't have the guts to go down and do it. But David did. But he received opposition from those that were closest to him. Even Saul, later on, you know, Saul said the same thing, didn't he? But you're a youth. Well, then there's the opposition from, obviously, those around him in doing that. But I'll tell you this, God is a mighty God. And Jesus himself faced opposition. When Jesus began his public ministry, his own household, his brothers, they were not brothers by faith, but brothers by bloodline. They were born of Mary and Joseph after Jesus' birth. Remember, Mary was a virgin, and she had conceived Jesus miraculously, but she had other children. We know that because in John chapter 7, it says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That's what Jesus tells his disciples. Show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. He received opposition. Now, his brothers later would believe. It would be after the resurrection. How about Saul of Tarsus? Saul the Pharisee, who was persecuting Christians, gets marvelously converted, Acts chapter 9. And you know what? The first opposition he receives is from Christians. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Ironically funny. Bad way. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Think about that. Someone gets converted and people who should know better... Look at him and say, it can't be. Just can't be. Now, I'm glad they didn't just stop there. They eventually got their hearts right, and Saul was welcomed in, and he became the greatest, I think, that missionary that would go out, you know, by my stature. I'm not saying God's, but he was a great missionary. He was the, he was the missionary of the first century. He would go out. He'd be the first one to bring the gospel to Europe. My ancestors. Over and over again. And you know, the family of Gideon was watching. Sometimes the things we fear, God is already at work in. I, could, I won't have time today, but I can tell you in my own family that happened. The thing that I feared the most was that I'd be rejected by my family and God was at work in their life. Judges chapter 6. But Joash, that's the father of Gideon, the one who had the Baal image, said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? All of a sudden, Joash, he appears to have repented. And he's looking at this crowd of angry people and he says, would you actually defend Baal? I mean, this is the same Joash who was a Baal worshiper at one time. Now he's saying, would you? Baal's in pieces. And his wife is being burned. That's what these false images were worth. They were just junk. 
Would you save him? There wasn't a person there that could go out and put Baal back together again. <laughs> Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by mourning. Joash is speaking truth. Where did he get that? He got it from his son. His son stood up and did the right thing. And Joash, all of a sudden, has a change of heart. He repents and he's now on the right road. If he is a god, let him plead for himself. Because his altar has been torn down. And by the way, Baal never appears in, uh, again in the life of Gideon as someone who's resurrected himself. Baal never got resurrected. Baal's dead. Baal, the image of Baal was crumbled. Baal was a construct of the, the sinful imaginations of people. But Ga- Baal was torn down. And he was so weak that someone could break him in pieces and take his wife and be burned there, the wooden image of Asherah. Therefore, on that day, he called him, Joash called him Jerubbabel, one who contends with Baal. In other words, that was not a, a badge of dishonor. It was a badge of honor. In other words, it'd be like saying, you're now a Baal slayer. Isn't that great? And he was known for the one who cut down Baal. Let Baal plead against him, Because he has torn down his altar. Listen, your walk of faith is being closely examined by those who are closest to you. Live for the Lord now because their eternity depends on that too. Father, thank you for the word of God. And we are just reminded of the power of a testimony of someone who is following you and doing what you've commanded. And they just do so. Maybe not perfectly, but they just do so in obedience. And we pray, oh God, that we'd be such a people that would walk in obedience. First and foremost, obeying the gospel message. To return from our sins and trust Jesus as our Savior. For believing in Him, we are given eternal life. The only way. Lord, as believers, help us to walk in obedience, not in fear but in obedience, serving you. And we just thank you today and thank you for each other. And we pray as we go out of this place today that you just empower us and give us boldness and give us a good testimony and witness among those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.